Hello, hello. Thank you for listening to The Matrix is Real. My name is Neo. Today I wanted to discuss a pretty unknown book that uh, has been widely discussed among scholars, theologians, historians, but the general public is um, in large uh, large part unaware of and wholly ignorant to its existence. Um, I'm talking about The Lost Gospel Q. Now, According to mainstream Christian theology, the earliest um, Christian texts uh, were the writings of, of Paul, which were written in, in the 50s, and uh, then the, uh, the four uh, primary uh, Gospels, Mark, Matthew, Luke, and John, which were written around the years, uh, in the years 70s uh, and also in the 80s and 90s of uh, the first century. But uh, I'm basically just going to uh, read the preface and also um, the introduction of the Lost Gospel Q, just to give a little background, and then in a, in a future episode, I'll um, be reading the actual uh, the actual book. But this is the preface uh, written by Marcus Borg, who is a PhD. It is an honor and a pleasure to write a preface to this edition of the Lost Gospel Q, one deliberately designed to make Q available to the general reading public. The Lost Gospel Q is of great interest and importance because in the judgment of most scholars, it is the first Christian gospel. Written in the 50s of the first century, only a couple of decades after the death of Jesus, Q is significantly earlier than the four gospels of the New Testament. Mark, the earliest of these, was written around the year 70. Matthew and Luke followed a decade or two later, and John probably in the last decade of the first century. Only the genuine writings of Paul, most of which were also written in the 50s, are as early as Q. But his writings were not gospels, but letters. They were his personal and pastoral correspondence with early Christian communities outside the Jewish homeland and addressed issues facing those communities. Paul's letters thus contain very little material about Jesus as a figure of history, his teachings and deeds. That was not their purpose. Therefore, Q is not only the first Christian gospel, but the earliest written form of the Jesus tradition. In the last 25 years, Q has been one of the hotspots of the historical study of the Gospels and Jesus, a major focal point of scholarly research. In North America, this work is associated especially with James Robinson, Arland Jacobson, John Kloppenborg, Burton Mack, and Leif Vage. Yet, the claim that there was a lost Gospel Q, that is, an early Christian collection of the sayings of Jesus, older than all of the surviving Gospels, is not a recent innovation. The scholarly case for the existence of Q was first made over 150 years ago. By the early 1900s, Q had become widely accepted by scholars and involved in the study of the Christian origins. The basis of the Q hypothesis, as it is commonly called, is a large amount of material, over 200 verses, found in both Matthew and Luke, but not in Mark. Most scholars do not think that either the author of Matthew or the author of Luke knew the other's gospel. Therefore, the material they share in common cannot be the result of one borrowing from the other, but must come from an earlier written source to which they both had access. That common source was the lost gospel Q. Thus, Q is a hypothetical document. No copy of it has ever been found. It is therefore possible to deny that that it existed, as some scholars do not accept the Q hypothesis. But most do. My impression is that at least 90% of contemporary gospel scholars do. It seems to them, and to me, a necessary hypothesis. So, accepting the highly probable hypothesis that Q existed, what was it like? Q was a sayings gospel. 
It consists primarily of sayings attributed to Jesus and some to his contemporary and mentor, John the Baptist. To make this point negatively, Q contains very few stories about Jesus. Unlike the Gospels of the New Testament, Q is not a narrative gospel. There are no birth stories, no death and resurrection stories, there are almost no miracle stories. The one exception, the healing of a centurion's servant, has as, as, as its climax a saying of Jesus, so even the exception fits the basic pattern of Q as a sayings gospel. These sayings fall into three main categories. The largest category is wisdom teaching, sayings about how to live the way that Jesus taught. A somewhat smaller category consists of conflict and judgment sayings. The former include sayings in which Jesus criticized practices and or groups that were part of his social world or in which he responded to criticisms directed against him. The latter threatened a, com threatened a coming judgment by God. It should be noted that judgment in the biblical tradition does not necessarily mean the last judgment. The prophets of the Hebrew Bible most often spoke of God's judgment as happening within history rather than bringing history to a close. The third and smallest category consists of teachings about Jesus himself, his temptations by Satan, and his responses, and his saying about his relationship to God being like that of a son to a father. The presence of these somewhat diverse categories of material is among the reasons for a recent development in Q studies. Namely, beginning in the mid-1980s, some scholars argued that Q can be separated into three layers or stages of development. To put the point only slightly differently, that Q went through three editions or redactions. These successive layers or editions are designated as Q1, Q2, and Q3. Q1, the wisdom material, is seen as the earliest, probably put into writing in the 50s, and closest to what Jesus himself taught. Though demanding, Q1 is essentially optimistic and reflects the enthusiasm of the early years of the Jesus movement. Q2, with its elements of conflict and judgment, reflects a later stage in the movement's history, during which opposition to and rejection of the movement had become pronounced, the 50s and perhaps the early 60s of the first century. Q3 is slightly later and reflects the movement's emerging Christological beliefs about Jesus as the Son of God. But many scholars are skeptical that Q can be divided into successive layers of development. The issue is not whether Q was a developing tradition, clearly it was, just as the Gospels as a whole are the product of the developing traditions of early Christian movements. The issue, rather, is whether Q can be neatly divided into a series of discernible and discrete stages of development. The present volume does not divide Q into Q1, Q2, and Q3, but presents it as an integrated whole. Like all the Gospels, the Lost Gospel Q can be read on two different levels, that is, it can be read with two different questions in mind. Both are very interesting and centrally important for the study of Jesus and Christian origins. First, what does it tell us about the people in the community who produced it? What does it disclose about their situation, convictions, and practices, their vision of life and sense of what was most central, their beliefs about Jesus? Second, what does it suggest about Jesus as a historical figure? Here, the focus is not on the community itself, but on the way in which the document functions as a lens for glimpsing the historical Jesus. I do not wish to suggest comprehensive answers to these questions in this preface. It would be impossible to do so. Moreover, the purpose of the questions is to guide your own reading of the Lost Gospel Q. But I do wish to make a couple of remarks. I begin with the most striking thing the Lost Gospel Q tells us about the community that produced it. On the assumption that Q contains what was most central to the Q community, it provides evidence for an early Christian community that did not make the death and resurrection of Jesus central to his message. Q contains no passion narrative, no death and resurrection stories. 
It is an important point. For this community, what mattered most about Jesus was not his death and resurrection. The community did not stress believing that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. So I'm just going to, uh, this is me just talking. I'm going to step aside and, and, and touch on this point that, that, the, the, that what is it, Marcus Borg uh, mentioned. Is that the people that walked and talked with Jesus and continued on the, the ministry of Jesus after his crucifixion seemed wholly uninterested in the fact that he supposedly rose again and ascended into heaven uh, to, to God's right you know right side on the throne. For me, that just stands out. It's like if you literally were aware of or saw Jesus you know resurrected from the dead, that would be a pretty critical point in message, don't you think? But if you understand and read the actual history of the Bible and and how everything unfolded, it was Saul of Tarsus who really invented the uh, the Son of God uh, Christ narrative that Jesus was divine at birth and was the d- direct um, you know God incarnate on Earth via the Trinity. That was the first you know people that person that suggested that um, James and the the Jews within uh, Jerusalem that knew Jesus. They never really, you know, talked about him being the literal son of God. They said he was Messiah. They said he was, you know, supposed to be king of of, uh, of the nation of Israel. But that, uh, you know, he he wasn't he wasn't uh, elevated to this this God status until it was Saul of Tarsus. So I'll continue. What did matter for the Q community was the teachings of Jesus. To a large extent, Q is a classic two ways teaching a form known in the Jewish tradition and in most religions. There is a wise way and a foolish way, the narrow way and the broad way. One way leads to life, the other to death. The sayings in Q most often speak of the way or path that Jesus taught, a way deeply subversive of the document, uh, I'm sorry, excuse me, uh, deeply subversive of the dominant cultural consciousness of his day and perhaps of every day. Here was a form of early Christianity, probably Galilean, that centrally emphasized the way, to use the phrase cited in the book of Acts as the earliest name for the Christian movement. It is quite different from the most traditional and modern forms of Christianity. Yet too much should not be made of this point. For example, though it means that the theology of the Q Christians was quite different from the theology of Paul, the two points of view do not seem to me to be intrinsically irreconcilable. Of course, the Lost Gospel Q tells us much more about the Q community, but I leave that to, to your reading. I turn now to the second question. What glimpses does Q have of Jesus? A caution. Just because the Lost Gospel Q is relatively early, we should not think of it as a near transcript of events and teachings going back to Jesus himself. As noted earlier, Q is the product of a developing tradition, and some of the material in it is unlikely to go back to Jesus. With that caution in mind, what picture of Jesus emerges? Taking Q as a whole, I will mention six elements. First, Jesus was a wisdom teacher with a metaphoric mind a teacher of an unconventional wisdom, commonly expressed in memorable aphorisms. It was He was a master of the one-liner. Second, he was a radical cultural critic. Through subversion of cultural consciousness is, is characteristic of most teachers of unconventional wisdom, there is also sharp and passionate social criticism in Q. It is directed against wealth and against the ruling elites, religious, political, and economic. Indeed, the Jesus of Q threatens Jerusalem, which was the home of the elites, with divine judgment. The social passion of Jesus' radical cultural criticism makes him similar to the great social prophets of the Hebrew Bible. Third, from Q, we would discern that Jesus was a religious ecstatic. He had visions, undertook a wilderness ordeal or vision quest, 
spent long hours in prayer and was said by his critics to be spirit-possessed and spoke of God with intimate metaphors. Fourth, we would surmise that he was a healer and exorcist. Though Q has only one healing story, it contains sayings about both healings and exorcisms. Fifth, the Q community spoke of Jesus as the wisdom of God, that is, as the Sophia of God, and as the Son of God, though not yet in an ontological sense. Whether either Christological image does go back to Jesus is much debated and uncertain. Sixth, the Jesus of Q spoke both of an apocalyptic eschatology and a sapiental eschatology. The former speaks of a supernatural intervention by God coming to the Im imminent future. It stresses waiting for God to act, as the contemporary Jesus scholar John Dominic Croissant puts it. The sp second speaks of the ending of the world of cultural consciousness and domination brought about through response to an enlightened teacher. To echo Crossland again, the second form stresses that God is waiting for us to act. Both are in cue, whether both can be traced back to Jesus, and if so, how they are qualified by each other is another question. Like all editions of the Lost Gospel Q, the present one is a reconstruction from the non-Markan material shared in common by Matthew and Luke. Mark Powelson and Ray Riegert, the editors of this volume, have immersed themselves in the history of Q scholarship from the 19th century to the present and are thoroughly convergent, uh, conversant with the recent burst of the publishing of, on Q. Their reconstruction largely follows the order of Q as found in John Kloppenborg's recent foundational study. They have made major use of massive, massive commentaries by W.D. Davies and Dale Allison on Matthew and Joseph Fitzmaier on Luke. They have considered the conclusions of scholars from the more conservative end of the scholarly spectrum such as I, Howard Marshall, and Robert Gulick. Their translation takes into account multiple versions of the Bible, even as it is all... Even as it is often, yeah, man, I can't speak. Even as it is often also fresh, I commend this volume to you, and I invite you to explore for yourself the earliest layer of the Jesus tradition. Now I'll move on to this is just a brief part, the story of the Lost Gospel Q, a little bit of history. Uh, during the decades immediately following the death of Jesus, small bands of believers wandered the countryside around Galilee. Many were poor people, barefoot, sparsely clothed, lacking staffs and bags, who traveled from village to village. Their homeland was a region of loamy farms and straw-colored hills. The larger towns were linked by Roman roads cobbled with a chalk, uh, chalky stone that blew into white dust clouds as the pilgrims passed. Some spoke like prophets. Others were charismatics who seemed to be the who seemed to the uninitiated to hover somewhere between a position of grace and a state of madness. Many were simple folk who sought out friendly houses that would share a meal along the way. Like other first century Galileans, some of the men had long ringleted hair and wore rectangular cloaks that were draped across the body. They were bearded and spoke in the soft slurred syllables of the Aramaic tongue. Women were clad in more colorful garments, which they sometimes belted with a sash. They were Jews. Most had grown up with 100 within a hundred miles of the magnificent te temple in Jerusalem, the center of Judaism in the Roman world. But to many, this holy spot was less a place of pilgrimage than an urban center of the ruling elite. These were for the farmers and the fishermen, the homeless and the afflicted whom Jesus had called the salt of the earth. Unknowingly, they were created, creating a new sect within Judaism that would soon blossom into a religion of its own. The laws of ritual purity and, the, and temple sacrifice practiced in Jerusalem were less important than Jesus' idea of sharing with the impure and dispossessed. 
They had believed that a new age was approaching, one that called for a revolutionary change of heart. Giving up worldly possessions and following a simple lifestyle would bring them closer to God than listening to the high priests. What these Mediterranean peasants had in mind was a new world in which God's presence could be felt on earth by even the simplest people, regardless of their status and background. They were among the first Christians. Their beliefs were derived from the Jesus teachings and were contained in a collection of his sayings. Passed along orally at first, these quotes eventually were recorded in written form. The Lost Gospel Q. Whereas Jewish scribes had been recording holy text on long scrolls for centuries, the Lost Gospel Q was possibly a codex, a forerunner to the modern-day book. Codices were made by chopping papyrus sheets into rectangles and then stacking them. Holes were punched along the side, loose-leaf style, and the manuscript was bound together by leather thongs and covered with wood or animal hide. The result was a primitive book slightly larger than the one you were holding. Whereas scrolls were created by scribes practicing the art of calligraphy, Many codices were copied by workaday hands. More functional than precious, the Codex was a handbook, a portable text suited to the wandering missionary. Crude as it was, this saying's gospel presented the original version of some of Jesus' most profound teachings. Here was the Sermon on the Mount and the Lord's Prayer, the story of John the Baptist and the parable of the lost sheep. It contained aphorisms and advice and offered guidance on living a compassionate life. Unlike the book, books of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John that would follow during the next several decades, the Lost Gospel Q lacked narrative and did not mention Jesus' birth or death. It was his teachings, not his crucifixion, that were important. The first gospel was compiled by some of the earliest followers in his native Galilee. Written about two decades after Jesus' death, it is older than the traditional gospels, older than the Christian church itself. Q, quite simply, is the closest we can come to the historical Jesus. More than any other document, this text holds the answers to the mysteries surrounding Jesus. But no copy has ever been found. The words of Jesus you are about to read were not deciphered by, by archaeological archaeologists from the leaves of a crumbling manuscript. Rather than a single rare find, the discovery of the Lost Gospel Q has been the result of over 150 years of detective work by historians and theologians. They did not disin... Uh, and they did not disinter it from archaeological layers of earth, but found it buried within the literary layers of the New Testament itself. The solution to the mystery of the Lost Gospel Q began in Germany during the 1830s. Probing into the Synoptic Gospels, historians began discovering unusual patterns in the texts. It seemed that the authors of Matthew and Luke had copied heavily from the book of Mark. This meant that contrary to centuries of church tradition, which had accorded to Matthew the primary position, Mark was actually the first of the four Gospels. Then in 1838, Christian Weiss, a lecturer in philosophy and theology at the University of Leipzig, unearthed proof that Matthew and Luke had drawn not only from the book of Mark, but from a second source as well. Laying the books of Matthew and Luke side by side, Weiss realized that this unknown second source was filled with sayings of Jesus that did not appear in the book of Mark. It soon became known as Q, drawing its name from the German word Quell, or source. Ironically, it took another hundred years and the archaeological discovery of a different document to fully substantiate Weiss's theory. It was in December 1945, just a few months after the end of the World War II, when a treasure trove of early Christian manuscripts was discovered along the Upper Nile River in a town called Nag Hammadi. Unlike the Dead Sea Scrolls, Unearthed just a few years later, these documents were codices covered in leather and containing Christian writings. 
Among the 13 precious books was one very unusual volume that triggered a revolution, a revolution in Bible studies, the impact of which is still being felt. It was called the Gospel of Thomas and consisted of 114 sayings purportedly spoken by the living Jesus. Here was an unknown gospel similar in form and content to the documents implied in Weiss's findings. Like Hugh, the Gospel of Thomas did not mention the birth or death of Jesus. Most significant of all, over one-third of the sayings it contained were similar to those in the Lost Gospel Q. This indicated that Q was more than a collection of quotes. Like the Gospel of Thomas, it was a gospel, a vital handbook for early Christians. Then, during the 1980s, biblical historian John Kloppenborg demonstrated that collections of wisdom sayings similar to the Lost Gospel Q had served as instruction books during the time of Jesus. Scholars from around the world, finally realizing the importance of this first gospel, formed the International Q Project and the Q Project of the Society of Biblical, Biblical Liter Literature to spearhead further investigations into what had proved to be the original source for over 225 verses in the books of Matthew and Luke. By extracting Q from the pages of the traditional gospels, historians have uncovered a missing link between Judaism and Christianity. In a sense, the lost gospel Q is pre-Christian. It was later writers who added the details about Jesus' life and death that became the bedrock of Christian belief. Jesus in the Lost Gospel Q is neither Christ nor the Messiah, but rather the last in a long line of Jewish prophets. He is a charismatic teacher, a healer, a simple man filled with the Spirit of God. Jesus is also a sage, the personification of wisdom cast in the tradition of King Solomon. Synagogues in Galilee were not temples but meeting places. Town halls where Jews gathered to sing, pray, gossip, and debate scripture. People in Jesus' Jesus's time would have sat on the benches that lined every wall and listened as he rose, moved to the center of the small room, and began to speak. His words were probably very similar to the message that lies within Q. Jesus talks about villages, neighbors, spouses, and children. There are lessons on the relation between households, borrowing, and the importance of helping one another. The passages he quotes from the Old Testament are part of a popular tradition, simply simple sayings that do not reflect a learn, learned interpretation. His imagery is rural and agricultural, creating a portrait of Galilee with its mud huts, tilled fields, and fishing villages. More important to the destitute people who surrounded Jesus, there was a vision of the future. He speaks in cue of a new age and a higher form of happiness and calls upon his listeners to follow, even when that means breaking family ties and sacrificing possessions. It is everyone's responsibility to bring this new age, this realm of God, into being. The realm, in turn, is open to everyone regardless of their status, background, or ability. In the parable of the supper, those originally invited end up on the outside looking in, while the homeless people living along alleyways and country roads enjoy the feast. The Lost Gospel Q is a guidebook to the land of the soul. It provides simple advice on getting along in the world. There are instructions on the everyday and the eternal alike. The message to each individual is that he or she is important, vital in fact, part of the fabric of the world. In stressing the individual, it turns the imperial Roman world of the first century upside down, proclaiming that the last will be first and the first will be last. What then happened to this text? Why has it been missing for two millennia? Why isn't it part of the New Testament? One very obvious answer is that when the authors of Matthew and Luke wrote their texts, they combined the Lost Gospel Q with the story of his birth in Bethlehem and Jesus' ministry in Galilee and beyond. Then in one of the most moving passages, moving passages in literature, they recounted his arrest in the holy city, the subsequent trials foretold 
uh, before the high priests and Roman officials and his execution. Simply stated, Matthew and Luke were more complete. Their text could have, been, could have eventually replaced the earlier gospel. And noteworthy is the importance they accorded to the apostles. Barely mentioned in the Lost Gospel Q, the twelve disciples are portrayed in the traditional gospels as the rightful heirs of Christ's kingdom. His earthly power is passed along to them in what, is known, has, what has become known as, as the apostolic succession, a tradition that even today places the Pope in a direct line of spiritual descent from Jesus. It was the early church fathers who helped determine the canon of the New Testament, and in doing so, they have been concerned about the role of the disciples in any text. Strange, too, is the failure of modern-day scholars to unveil the lost gospel cue before the general public. Whereas large sections of the Dead Sea Scrolls were willfully withheld from the world for over 40 years by a small group of academics, Q has, has been endlessly debated by scholars who seem more concerned with their precise shape and wording of the document than in presenting it to the public. They have provided translations of the text, but, ironically, have buried them in lengthy treatises, much like the text once lay hidden in the books of Matthew and Luke. Their sin has been one of omission rather than a commission. But now it is time, as the quest for the historical Jesus increasingly becomes a matter of public interest and spiritual concern, for everyone to have access to his earliest teachings. Q is, after all, both a doorway into the world of ancient Christianity and a window into the soul and spirit of Jesus. What we have, a, what we have is a long-lost gospel with a very contemporary message. So that's the end of it. Um, if you're still with me, thanks for listening. The, the, the point that I take away from this, and I'll just summarize my own beliefs. Um, if you look at the history of Jesus, it seemed that uh, we, we have been taught a false image of Jesus. Any of us that have gone to, you know, to Sunday school and, and been raised in churches, we've always been you know, focused on turning the other cheek and essentially being a pacifist and, and allowing you know, evil to thrive. But the true nature of the historical Jesus is anything but. He was, by all accounts, a political anarchist. And um, his messages threatened not only you know, the religious order, but also the, um, the, the economic order. And obviously, um, the, the, the role of, of government, which was the Romans, uh, which is why he was arguably the greatest uh, political dissident in all of Rome. Uh, a fact that many people gloss over is that uh, while many Christians say, you know, it was the, the, the Jews, uh, the Pharisees that, that condemned him to death, at the end of the day, he was executed by the Romans and the official act, um, uh, his official crime was sedition. Um, they put on his plaque, uh, you know, that, that's what, how they listed the person's crimes when they were being crucified. It said, Jesus, King of the Jews. Uh, they argue that, that Jesus was trying to become king and thus posed a direct threat to to Rome, to the emperor of Rome. So um, when you when you understand this, it makes sense why they ended with in, in, in the in the preface, they ended with, uh, you know, why has this book been, been essentially kept, kept secret for arguably about 2000 years well my only question to you is what do you think they have in in rome in the vatican archives which are 53 miles of highly secured vaults that are uh, i believe they're buried underground and you cannot even gain access to anything in, in these vaults unless you 
unless you have approval from the from the Vatican and if you know what you're looking for. So you have to submit a request for a document that you know you you technically shouldn't know it even exists, right? Only they do. But that's what I believe is that the Vatican knows the truth truth about Jesus as do the world elites. And it is my opinion that the the conspiracy surrounding Jesus is the greatest conspiracy in all of human history. I will say that again. The Jesus conspiracy is the greatest conspiracy in all of human history. And the reason why, how many Christians are alive on planet Earth? By, by the recent counts I've seen, it's about two and a half billion people that identify as Christians. That includes Catholics, Protestants, Lutherans, you know, all them. That's roughly, what, one third of the global population? Um, you could also add in Jesus and combine Christians with Muslims because this is a fact that many Christians do not know. Did you know that Jesus is the most mentioned person in the Islamic Quran, both directly and indirectly, even more so than the Prophet Muhammad? Okay, one more time. Jesus is the most mentioned person in the Quran. Was he the literal son of God? Well, no. Because in the Quran, Allah says that worshiping anyone other than God is basically the, the highest form of sin. And it was actually Jesus himself that said the same thing. He said, we must worship and serve no one but God. There's also a part where he says, a man cannot serve two masters, for if he serves two, he will love one and hate the other. If you're worshiping Jesus Christ as God, by definition, you are worshiping a false idol. You are not worshiping God. The only way that you can reconcile the, the, this truth is if you subscribe to Pauline theology, which says that Jesus was the literal son of God, a.k.a. God incarnate being the Trinity. But what most Christians that believe that don't know is that this was not even an accepted belief, you know, widely accepted until number one, after after the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 A.D., I bet you didn't know that. Jerusalem was burnt to the ground by would-be Emperor Titus uh, after a major rebellion out, uh, broke out uh, of the Jews against Rome. Uh, many uh, historians attribute it to the um, to the execution of James, the brother of Jesus. But the Jews weren't having it anymore. They 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 launched a full-scale war against the against Rome. And after they killed and captured, you know, all the Romans in Jerusalem, uh, you know, they celebrated for a little bit. But, you know, a short time later, Titus marched in with, you know, his his massive troops and and, uh, you know, obviously their their technological advances with regard to warfare. And they literally burnt the city to the ground. They killed every man, woman and child. And those that they didn't kill, they sold them as slaves. So um, the only reason that Pauline theology flourished was that there was no one in Jerusalem that knew Jesus, no one there to refute anything he was teaching. Um, and, and it was actually while before the destruction of Jerusalem, James recalled Saul. I refuse to call him Paul because he was a liar. So why should I call him a fake name that he created? His name was Saul of Tarsus. He recalled Saul of Tarsus back to Jerusalem and had him publicly take back his complete lies about, about his brother. You can read this in the book of Acts. He forces Saul to undergo a purification ritual in the uh, in the temple in Jerusalem. The very temple that that Saul now said was irrelevant because you don't need you don't need to go to the temple 
or follow any of the old uh, Jewish laws because now as long as you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, you'll be saved and, and everything is good. But it was Jesus himself, himself who said, I am not here to abolish the law. The, the law of Moses will forever endure. I am here to purify it. And that's what I think is going on today is Jesus essentially purified the law of Moses because uh, the elites in power interpreted it to their benefit to keep the peasants and the poor people poor and to further enrich themselves, which is the same thing that's going on today. The people that have interpreted the Bible, they have done so to fit their narrative. We have, you know, the United States of America, for example, is supposedly a Christian nation. And Jesus' ministry was built on forgiveness. Yet the American justice system is rooted in retribution, an eye for an eye. You kill somebody, you go to prison. You kill somebody, you get killed yourself. And in many cases, you're punished for nonviolent crimes that don't even have a victim. If you, don't, if you don't believe me on that, I mean, how many black people are sitting in prison right now for, for you know, smoking weed, for selling weed? You know, a freaking plant that God created. So I, thanks for, you know, being with me on that little rant. I will go more in depth on this uh, at, a, at a future episode, but I did want to get your, your feet a little bit wet uh, on, um, on on the gospel, Lost Gospel Q. And uh, you can find it on Amazon. When I looked last, it would actually was pretty expensive because, um, for, again, for some reason, there's not a lot of uh, people publishing this book which is pretty interesting, I feel. I feel it's being suppressed. But um, I was reading from the Lost Gospel Q, the original sayings of Jesus. Uh, the introduction was from Thomas Moore, T-H-O-M-A-S-M-O-O-R-E. And the consulting editor was Marcus Borg, M-A-R-C-U-S-B-O-R-G. Um, I would check it out on Amazon. This is my personal Bible. Uh, there is another book that I uh, I read and give a lot of uh, credit to. Um but I will discuss that one in a future time. Thank you for listening. Once again, my name is Neo, and this is The Matrix is Real. Out.